Welcome to the Alpha Dude Podcast with Michael Pulser. What would it be like if you knew that you were unstoppable and you could live life on your terms? Better yet, how good would it feel knowing that on your deathbed, you had fulfilled all your potential and more? Life on Earth has a beginning and an end. It's what you do in the middle that counts. Let's look at how to make that part even better. If you want to purchase a product, there are two things that you take into consideration. The first one is always, will it do the job? And the second one is, will it last? The durability of the product. In terms of ourselves, we also ask the same questions. Firstly, we examine Will we be able to do the job? And that's what the podcast is all about. We examine how to maximize the effectiveness and fulfill all our potential in utilizing the Alpha Dude system. That's what Personal Upgrade is all about. However, this episode will focus on the second point, and that is, will it last? Will we last? Do we have the resilience that we need to go on and do what we have to do? So there are two parts when it comes to durability or resilience. First, there's the physical. And when we look at that, we have to look at future episodes because we're going to do something on that in the future, I'm sure. But the second one is the mental, and that's what we're going to focus on today. The focus of today is on resilience. And in order to have the resilience, we must recognize that fragility is the absolute opposite So our entire goal is to become the opposite of fragile. And what is fragile? Well, we all know. It's an object that's easily damaged or broken. It's the opposite of durable. So what damages or breaks us mentally? Well, the answers are interesting because it's exactly the same thing that also can help build us up. And that's people, experiences, and situations. But of course, the negative type. So the solutions are, one, we can avoid these negative situations, negative experiences and negative people, or we can adapt to the situation. In order to avoid something, it's actually a great solution and it can be useful at times. It gets us out of where we are going to be attacked. It helps us to avoid problems. But as I mentioned in the situation on myself, it also comes at a cost. So eventually we always have to learn to adapt to it. And when we adapt, we experience the stress and we examine the meaning and the focus. And this comes into play pre, post and during. And basically the pre and post work is all about reviewing, planning, looking at contingencies. The during work is basically getting in the moment on being in that place right now using mindfulness whatever it is while in the back of your mind focusing on the meaning of the situation now let's get down to it a little bit further with an actual example so let's say that you're a boxer and you're around five out of ten of a heavy sparring session now you're absolutely spent well when I say absolutely it's a relative term you're exhausted, you've been hit, the other guy's better than you, you're getting gassed, what do you do? Well, there's basically two options, and that's either go on or give up. And it all depends on what the meaning of the situation is in what you do. So if you give up, it's quite well 
thought through. I mean, it's a natural impulse and it's easy to say, don't give up. But when you're in that situation, you really got to have something deep to get you through. Because after all, if you're exhausted, if you've got all those problems, you can easily get rid of the situation by avoiding it and saying, that's enough. Comfort calls, you get out of it, you give in to fear and problem is solved. So it is a solution. But as I said, it comes at a cost. The other option is that you can go on. And the only way that we can do this is by giving a meaning to the suffering and focusing on why we are here, why we are put in that situation or why we have put ourselves in this situation. We focus on our past training, our past successes. We focus on the present. We try and get in the headspace where we attach this meaning so it overcomes anything negative within us. And as you're probably aware of the Navy SEAL, David Goggins, he says, once you've actually been able to strive through and achieve and push through and get your success, whatever it is, say training for that full 10-round session, you can say, hey, that's amazing. I did it. I pushed through when I was exhausted. And then you put it in what he calls the the cookie jar. And once you have the cookie jar, you can reach into the cookie jar, mentally that is, during your next experience and say, well, look, I've done this before. I can do it again. And it provides a reference point for how you can move on in future situations. And this essentially transcends pain and suffering and redefines it so that you can actually own the result. Now, if you gave up, you have to own it. And that is why most people don't succeed because who wants to own giving up? We all justify, we all rationalize it and never ever underestimate the ability of people to rationalize because we all rationalize things away and we're all masters of it. But if you did give up, that's fine. Own it, accept the truth and see that you can change. And next time, if you can try to push yourself in the right mental place so that you can go on, own it as well. As when I say own it, it becomes something that you own. It's a part of you. No one can take it away. And this builds up your confidence in that skill set or in that situation. And it builds up your ability to do it again in the future. Always remember that the unknown fear is the most scary fear there ever is. And once you've faced it, say through training or whatever it is, and push yourself, the fear is not so scary anymore. It's just something that was a mental game. And it's simply that, a game. You know the rules. You have to play with it and change it and focus and get to where you need to be. Now, I've actually experienced this not too long ago. When I was a child, I had extremely bad asthma. And I remember those asthma attacks. You couldn't actually breathe. It was, it was ridiculous. Like during an asthma attack, nothing could help unless if you had the medicine in time. And I was hospitalized many times. And those asthma attacks were just like insanely terrible because when you can't breathe, the fear sets in, panic, all the stuff. It's like being strangled. Now, I went for a swim the other day. I take my boy to swimming lessons and I jump in the pool and do some laps when, when he does his, his lessons. Anyway, I went for a swim and on my second lap, I felt something like an asthma attack start. Now, luckily, I kind of grew out of asthma, so I don't really get it so bad anymore. But 
I was exhausted and I could feel myself that I was getting more and more tired. I could feel that asthma starting to set in. I could feel the breathlessness. And then I felt the fear and the exhaustion. And I was like, this is actually not good. I need to give up. And I was rationalizing everything just to stop. I mean, I'm two laps into my swim. And so I'm feeling that. And then I I start to overcome it. I start to redefine the meaning. I start to say, well, look, if I can push through this, then I'll be able to push through anything. And I don't think that this is actually going to hold me back anymore. It used to, and it no longer will. Now, I'm not saying if you've got an asthma attack to avoid it, but in this situation, I just pushed through it. And eight laps later, I touched the end of the pool and got out and said, that's amazing. I just did eight more laps while I was in that panic state. And now you can bet that every time I go to the pool now, if I ever get that sort of sensation, it becomes just a very weak pool that's easy to overcome. So I'm not telling you something that's in theory. It's something that's real. It's something that's difficult. It's something that is hard to apply, but it is something that has so many awesome rewards if you try it out for yourself. So don't be fragile. Be resilient. While resilience will help you overcome all things, it must be remembered that you can come back from wherever you are. And our next guest is here to share with us his story on overcoming drug addiction, going through jail time, and then on to becoming highly successful. But before we go there, I would like to again thank those of you who have got the copy of the Personal Upgrade book. And if you like it, I would really love it if you reviewed it on Amazon. I'd also like to encourage those of you who haven't reached out to flick me an email. I communicate with many listeners already, but I know for so many others, it's a one-way dialogue, this podcast. So if you have any questions or comments, let me know at michaelpolser at gmail.com. Polser is spelled P-U-L-S-E-R. And just a short response to a few messages that I haven't had time to get back to. Firstly, regarding the hypnosis episode, well pointed out, albeit Doubly is a word, it's one that we don't use often. In hypnosis, we utilize language patterns, including less commonly used words, and this helps induce trance. Regarding the Christian guest, as I mentioned, we've had a range of other guests uh, teaching Buddhism principles, secular psychology, a shaman who, who taught about spiritual journeys with ayahuasca, and for some reason, if a guest is Christian, they're just seen in a negative light by so many. So in regards to this, I'd just like to recommend that everyone should be open to all insights, find the truth, and then follow it. And then finally, thank you so much to everyone who's sent their their wishes and condolences for the loss of Big Al. He was truly a great guy. And with that being said, here's our next guest, Ben Swicegood. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Benjamin Swicegood, and this is my story When I was a young boy, maybe six or seven years old, my dad used to take me to Dunkin' Donuts and I used to get this awesome, great, sweet cinnamon bun that they had there with the butter just running down. I can picture that butter and taste that cinnamon roll that I used to get. And my dad used to go there in the mornings with 
different businessmen and different people he worked with, successful people. And my dad was very successful. He worked for Motorola. And so we had a good life. We made it, he made a good salary. We, we lived a good life and he was one of the top salesmen. And we had a nice house and we had a sailboat down on the river and we had a nice car and, and we had all these things that you would think made you successful, all these nice things. And I remember sitting in that Dunkin' Donuts in the morning with my dad and all these business people and thinking how great my dad was, how successful he was. And I remember thinking, when I grow up, I want to be just like my dad. I want to be just like my dad. But those words replayed in my head many years later as I was sitting in a jail cell with nothing left but pain and regret. I grew up with two good parents. I had a good life. I had a good upbringing. I was taught good morals and good values. I had the tools to succeed. I had good examples and, and role models to follow. I, I had the gifts, the talents to reach my goals, but I didn't use them. This life is a journey they were on. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's a, it's a journey and it's filled with ups and downs and rights and lefts and twists and turns and good times and bad times and through this journey there are processes that we have to go through processes and so one dark cold rainy night my apartment where I was living partying selling drugs and and all of this stuff got raided and I'll never forget the the sound of that knock you know when they knocked on that door it was a very distinct sound of a, a knock and Eventually, I would be indicted with five felonies ranging from possession to intent to distribute to manufacturing. And fortunately, by the grace of God, who I didn't even really believe in back then, I was only found guilty of the possession charges. So for as long as I could remember, um, I'd been searching for something to fulfill me, something to bring me peace, love, joy. And, and at the age of 22, I finally found it. It was heroin. Heroin. Now, I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail about how that turned out because when you go down the path of heroin, nothing good ever comes out of it. But as the story goes, one day I got a call from my probation officer and he told me, you failed again for opiates and I, I need you to come in to the office. Now, I'm not the smartest guy, but I know a little bit and I know that if I go in to this probation officer after failing opiates for a second or third time, I'm going to get locked up. I mean, there's no getting around it. So I did what any uh, smart man at the time would do. Instead of going into my probation officer, I packed my bag, clothes, and some, some food and different things, and I hit the road. I left my house. I left my job. I ended up leaving my car. I left everything that was tied to me and kind of hit the streets on the run from my probation officer because I didn't want to go and possibly get locked up. But no matter how high, how low, or how far I went, looking back, I know God was with me the whole time and, and was protecting me. So after almost a year or so in a far country, if you will, I was staying with some friends in a not-so-good place. This was around 1999, and something in me one day said, it's time to get out of here. Like something in my gut. I had this feeling that it, it, it's time to go. It, it might have been the conditions or the brokenness or the hunger pains, but I think it was God. So I came to my senses and I did what 
any man in my situation would do that needed help, I, I called my mom, right? And my mom uh, reminded me that because I was on the run from a pro probation officer, there was actually a warrant out for my arrest, and so, so she reminded me that the next day I had a court date, and if she was going to come pick me up, then I was going to have to go to court. And I said, you know what? I'll go to court. That's fine. I'm probably going to get locked up. But I just know that I need to get out of this place. So I did. I went to court the next day. And just as I thought, I got locked up. And I'd been locked up a couple times before, but, but they were just overnighters. You know, like this was something different. This time, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. Um, there was no getting me out of this one. I, I knew I was going to be in here for a little bit of time. And it's a scary, scary place to be when you're confined and locked up and captive almost, and you don't know when you're going to be released. You don't know when you're going to have freedom again. And a few days after being in there while going through the process of detoxing from drugs, I was sick. I mean, I was really sick, and I was barely eating. I, I couldn't sleep. My whole body ached, and, and I began to question my decision to leave that not-so-good place and come to jail. I mean, this is jail. This is no walk in the park. This is not easy. And I started to wonder, was this the right decision? I mean, has anybody ever questioned, like, a decision that they made? I mean, I was really questioning, you know, this, this decision. And then I saw one of the guys that was at the not-so-good place that I was just staying. I mean, I've been in jail for now six or seven days, and all of a sudden in the pod beside me, I see one of the guys that I was staying with just six or seven days before I turned myself in and, and got locked up. And he proceeds to tell me a story. He tells me that a few days after I left, they scoped out this bank nearby. And a couple of days after that, they went in and robbed the bank. They got away with $65,000. Now, this guy went and did what most people would probably do. He started spending the money, right? He started buying clothes and, and nice things, and he got hemmed up. And so now he's in jail telling me the story. But the other guy went and got a hotel room and kind of kind of secluded himself away. He didn't go out and spend a lot of money. Instead, he bought drugs. And so we find out that a month after that, he would go back to that same bank and rob it a second time, this time by himself. And the first time they robbed the bank, uh, he, he went in with a sawed-off shotgun and prepared to, to use it if he had to. But there was no security there, no officer or anything in the bank. So they were in and out. But this time, since the first robbery, they had hired a security guard because of that first robbery. And so when he came into the bank this time and he saw that security officer, as the reporters would tell you later, he went up to that uh, security guard. And next thing the bank tellers know is they heard two gunshots. And somebody yelled, get down, get down. And he proceeds to rob the bank of thirty-six, thirty-seven thousand dollars $37,000 and leaves and that security guard that he shot died right there on the spot that day and so this man later on would be sentenced and would be tried and would be given the death penalty and would eventually be given the lethal injection in 2007. Now what's interesting about this story is recently I was having lunch with my mom and we were talking about this was some 20 years ago we were talking about this story and she tells me a part of the story that I never knew. She tells me that the day she came and picked me up, 
this guy that would rob the bank twice and end up being uh, given the lethal injection, end up being killed for shooting a security guard, he walked out with me <clears throat> the day my mom came. And my mom opened the trunk so I could put <clears throat> some of my stuff in. And this guy told my mom, he said, I'm glad you're getting Ben out of here. There's still hope for him. And my mom said, there's hope for all of us if we're still alive, if we're still breathing. And this man said, no, there's no hope for me. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, how he almost predicted his hopelessness and predicted my hopefulness. And so now I'm like addicted to hope and I'm really passionate about giving people hope because I know how important it is to have hope versus being hopeless. After spending 12 months or so in jail and avoiding involvement in a bank robbery and possible murder that could have landed me many years, if not life behind bars, you would have thought that would have scared me straight. You know, you would have thought that would have stared me to God. You would have thought that that would have woke me up, shook me up and turned my life around, but it didn't. This process that I was going through wasn't over and there was more refining to be done. After just under a year, I got out and my mom let me stay with her and I said to myself, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm, I'm going to make better choices. This time I'm not going to fall back into an everyday addiction. I'll just maybe do some recreational drugs on the weekend, you know. But, but the weekends, they end up turning into three days and then four and five and six. And before you know it, you, you know, I was a full-time heroin addict again. And so my mom kicked me out, which is probably the best thing she could have ever done is kicked out her son. And once again, I'm by myself on the streets. I'm staying wherever I could stay. I'm doing whatever I could do to get money to support my habit. And at the age of 30, I wound up staying in a drug house, a crack house. So I'm already a heroin addict and now I'm living in a crack house. And so I also now become a crack addict as well. And so when you're in these types of situations, you get desperate and desperate people do desperate things. And so I began stealing and writing bad checks and, and doing whatever I could do to get enough money each day to get my drugs. Now, during this time of a year or two, my mom didn't know where I was. We had no contact and she starts praying. And I mean, she didn't just pray a few times. She prayed regularly, daily for years. And eventually these bad checks, they, they caught up to me and once again I find myself in jail. And so now my mom knows where I was and so that was a sigh of relief for her because now she knew where her baby was. And you know, the first week of jail is hard. It, it's the worst. And you know, I'd been through this before, but this time I was even in worse condition than I was prior. Once again, I was really sick. I was barely eating. I couldn't sleep. My whole body ached. I dropped down to just 93 pounds and the only thing they would give me for pain was ibuprofen and ibuprofen doesn't really do anything for heroin addiction but when you're an addict you'll take anything and so one particular day I was going down the stairs in my pod to get my daily ibuprofen and I faint. I just faint and that kind of moves me to the front of line and so they take me to medical and, and they hook an IV up to me because I've lost a lot of blood. I, I had internal bleeding 
and I'd lost a lot of blood, so they're giving me an IV, and that's not getting my blood pressure up, so they take me to the hospital. So I'm incarcerated, handcuffed, ankles are chained together, and I'm laying on a hospital bed with a security guard in my room, and I'm in and out of consciousness, but I wake up and the doctor comes in, and I got all these things attached to me, feel like needles all sticking in my arms, and all these things taped to my chest, and I'm shaking cold, I'm freezing, I got multiple blankets on me, but I'm still cold, and this doctor comes in and says, we need to do a blood transfusion. You've lost too much blood, and we need to do a blood transfusion, basically to save your life. Sign here. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, my mom's not there. I got no family. I'm not sure, should I sign this, should I not? Is this really what I need? Do, what is a man supposed to do, right? And so I do the only thing I know that I can do. I sign the paper and I get the blood transfusion and I guess it worked <laughs> because I'm alive today to tell the story. And a couple months after the hospital ordeal, I was sitting in my cell one night frustrated with my life, upset with myself and, and sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I did something that changed my life forever. I got down on my knees in that jail cell and I prayed for the first time ever in my life. I said something basically like, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I've tried to do things my way and I keep failing. I've lost everything. I've hurt people. I said, God, if you're real, if you're real, I need your help. I need you to do something. And boy, did he do something. I was facing two to three years in prison, and I got just under 12 months. I got out and I had a place to live, food to eat, clothes to wear, a job to do. I started serving the Lord, I started working in the ministry, and God began to start renewing my mind. He began to start opening up my heart. He began to start restoring relationships, and it was awesome. And so fast forward 13 years later, now my life is great. I have a great family. I have two beautiful children, a beautiful wife, a nice house. We live in a nice neighborhood with the cul-de-sac for the kids to play. We have nice cars. I have a nice job. I'm a real estate agent, a life coach. I still do some ministry. I go to the jails around town and speak. I actually go to the jail that I almost died and had that experience. I go back to that jail every Sunday night and speak to the guys there. By the grace of God, me, a five-time felon who was once selling drugs and eventually ended up homeless, living out of my car, is now selling real estate and helping people move forward in their life. I mean, only God, only God could pull that together. And, and it took a relationship with God. It, it took a long, intimate relationship with God, but it also took a renewing of my mind. I mean, I had to completely separate myself from who I used to be. And, and there was a day, I can't give you the exact day, but there was a day, a time, where I began to look at my past as my past. And I put a separation in between who Ben used to be and who Ben is today. And it was through that renewing process that God transformed my life by the renewing of my mind. And so now I'm addicted and passionate about giving hope, and I really enjoy helping people transform their lives. That's just what I really am passionate 
about it. I still do real estate. I still teach and train and speak and minister. But my heart, my passion is to help people overcome obstacles in their life and transform their lives by the renewing of their mind. And I call it breakthrough. And so you can find me at theupliftingplace.com. That's a website where I have some videos, some blogs, some my story is on there, my service is on there. I'm also on YouTube. You can find me at Ben Swicegood on YouTube, or you can look me up on Facebook. Send me a message on there. If you want, reach out to me. We'd love to help you in any way that I can. So honored and blessed to be here today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If so, rate it from the place you downloaded it. For any questions, send an email to michaelpulser at gmail.com.